Please arise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I, sh- I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, And he said, Here I am, son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Rachel, for reading our scripture lesson. Uh, this morning, and how wonderful was it to wake up to 57 degrees this morning? What a wonderful day 
and a wonderful fall season. Uh, we're grateful to Sunshine and Asbury Choirs for the beautiful anthem and to our Joy Sound Orchestra. Uh, we're so grateful for the joy that they bring to us through music and all of our musicians. Uh, please, uh, we need to remember today our middle school uh, who is on retreat, 7th and 8th graders, 150 7th and 8th graders, which also constitutes a prayer concern for the chaperones. Uh, we remember all of them. They're having a great time. Casey was with them during the weekend, was their speaker, and we remember them as they return safe travels. This is one of the most familiar and, might I say, troubling stories in all of sacred literature. Our Jewish friends have a name for this story. They call it the Akedah. The emphasis always in Hebrew on the last syllable, the Akedah, which in Hebrew literally means the binding, referencing the binding of Isaac. I don't know about you, but when I hear that story, it is difficult for me to imagine that God would command such a thing. I mean, particularly in lieu of this series that we've been talking about, it took forever, didn't it, for Abraham and Sarah to actually conceive this child. In fact, if you go back a chapter, chapter 21 contains the birth story where God delivers on a promise foretold by three strangers by the flap of the tent to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, and in the context of Sarah's nervous laugh, you remember what they said. They raised the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And Isaac was the answer to that question. And yet a chapter later, in what Rachel read for us, Abraham is led now to sacrifice the promise. It's somewhat ironic to me that if you go back in chapter 12, Abraham is called to forsake his past. And in chapter 22, it's as if he's being called to forsake his future. In chapter 12, he burns the bridges of the past to follow God, and it appears as though in chapter 22, he's being called to burn his only bridge into the future. And if he obeys this command, he and Sarah will return to being barren, hopeless again. Go figure. It's hard to understand, isn't it? The narrator, however, tries to help us. The writer of Genesis, verse 1, informs us of something in verse 1 that Abraham does not know. This is a test. God's chosen ones, and that includes all of us in the room, are not exempt from being tested. In fact, it's part of the journey. I don't have to tell you. It's part for the course. It usually, the test usually comes after some great revelation. It usually comes after some spiritual insight or epiphany. For example, it did for the Israelites in the book of Exodus. It was after their deliverance from Egyptian bondage through the Red Sea that they were tested in the wilderness. This was true for Job as well. It was after God had blessed this righteous man with all the perks and benefits that come from walking with God that he experienced the whirlwind. And it was even true for Jesus. It was after his baptism, at which time the heavens opened and the dove descended and the voice of God 
declared, this is my beloved son. It was after that that Jesus himself was driven into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. It comes with the territory. No test, no testimony. Of course, we know that God and Satan are at odds when it comes to the purpose of the test. Satan seeks by temptation to destroy our faith. God seeks through the test to develop our faith. Satan seeks to bring about our downfall while God seeks to build us up. But the truth of the matter is that trials neither make or break us. They reveal us. It's the same kind of thing in the classroom. The exam is not designed to trip us up or cause us to fail. Some of you may resemble this. Sometimes I resemble that on Thursday after battling a sermon for Sunday. But examinations, tests, don't trip us up or cause us to fail, although I always believe that pop tests, pop quizzes were of the devil. But the truth of the matter is such testing is designed to assess our grasp of the subject, to measure our comprehension of the curriculum. Every one of us are tested, but this one seems a little extreme to me. Some of you know the name Richard Dawkins. I don't quote him very often, and I shouldn't. He is an atheist zealot who's written a book called The God Delusion. I cannot recommend it. But in his book, he cites this text that we just read, Genesis 22, as an example of what he calls religion's barbaric cruelty. He writes, and I quote, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was just obeying orders. Yet, says Dawkins, this legend, he calls it a legend, is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, I'll give Dawkins credit for his rhetoric, but he has neglected something very important. He has forgotten to exegete the text. He's deleted history in his writing. His history is sadly lacking. In fact, it's non-existent because when your purpose is to cartoon and ridicule, you don't need to let history get in the way, do you? Indeed, such research might actually threaten his presuppositions. And so he approaches this text not to discern but to demean, not to exegete, which means to draw out the meaning, but to eisegete, to impose his own agenda in the text. That never happens today, but it happened a few years ago. You can't simply read these words with 21st century Western secular postmodern enlightenment eyes. You have to understand something about the Canaanite culture. Did you know that there was a time in ancient Canaan in their pagan culture where child sacrifice was considered an act of great piety and devotion? In fact, historians depict Molech, 
The ancient Canaanite god of fertility as a bronze statue heated with fire with these openings in which human sacrifices were cast. Indeed, excavations, archaeological excavations in the 1920s have showed evidence of child sacrifice in this section of the world. Artifacts bearing the inscriptions MLK, which is a technical term associated with child sacrifice, also thought to be associated with this pagan god Molech, have been found. Now, it's critical to remember at this point that prior to Abraham's call by Yahweh, he had been steeped in Canaanite religiosity. Indeed, he himself likely believed in this false god. And so in a culture where such pagans were so devout, can Abraham be any less dedicated to the one true God than these pagans? And this was Abraham's challenge. This is the test. Though I'm not so sure that child sacrifice was actually God's desire in the first place. Two scriptures, among many others, I could quote, support this premise. For example, Deuteronomy 12:31. The word says, take care that you do not imitate the behavior of such pagan religions, for every abhorrent thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods why they would even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to Molech. How about Jeremiah 19.5, where God is speaking judgment here, says, and I quote, Judah has allowed the building of high places, altars to Baal, another Canaanite god, where they burn their children in the fire as burnt offerings, which I did not command or decree, nor did it ever enter my mind says the Lord. This is not the will of God, never has it entered his mind. And so I think that at the core of this text, there is a battle in the heart of Abraham between his old paganism and his newfound relationship with Yahweh. This test is not primarily about child sacrifice. It's about whether Abraham values the gift more than the giver. It's it's about whether Abraham values the promise more than the promise maker. It's about whether Abraham will value his son even more than God. Will he revere his family, his heritage, his ethnicity more than Yahweh? That's the question, and that's what's at, the stake, at stake in the text. Now, when I think of that, I'm reminded of Jesus' bizarre words to the crowds that were following him in Galilee. Luke 14, verse 26, he says something really, really strange. Whoever comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, sisters and brothers, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. I can imagine that thinned the crowds down a little bit. And so often Jesus sounds like he's chasing away more potential followers than he is attracting. Uh, He wasn't much of a seeker-friendly church kind of guy. And when he said this, James Dobson would have probably had cardiac arrest. What's he talking about? 
If you take this verse out of context, you can do some real damage. You can justify some heinous things like abandonment and neglect and abuse. Again, you have to know the culture. When Jesus says this word hate in regard to family, he's using a tool that was common to rabbinical Judaism. It's called hyperbole. Have you heard of it? Exaggeration. Preachers never use it today, but rabbis did back when. And Jesus did. We talked about one text last week, a camel through the eye of a needle, that's hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. In Semitic culture, the words love and hate are not emotion-laden words as they are for us. They have to do with choice and priority. Hate, in this context, means to love less or not to choose. For example, Romans 9.13 has always bothered me where the Lord says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. It means he has chosen Jacob, not Esau. An example, I was talking to an Auburn alumnus the other day, and he said something like this, I hate Alabama. And I said, you mean you prefer to cheer for Auburn? He said, no, I mean hate. I mean, there are some things that are not hyperbole, but Jesus often uses hyperbole. Jesus himself, by the way, having said this about his family, is depicted earlier at the age of 12 loving and respecting his parents, and so he's not throwing off on honor your mother and father when he says this, but he has a higher priority in his life. I remember when our children were young, I think I've shared this before, our daughter, all the concerns always would come out at night. And so you'd go in to lay down, read the story, and usually you'd wind up going to sleep before she did and wake up in the middle of the night and return to your bed. But the questions always came out at night. Dad, do you love me? Yes, sweetie, you know I love you. Dad, do you love God? More than anything, I said. Dad, do you love God more than me? And I said, yes, sweetie, I do. Why? I said, because if I didn't love God most, I could never love you enough. And she went off into a peaceful sleep. This is what the test is about. It's about priority. It's about allegiance. The first commandment in the law, in the Decalogue, number one is this, thou shalt have no other gods before me, beside me. You know what that means? No other commitments beside me. No other love, no other loyalty before me. This is the test of Abraham, and this is the test of the children of Abraham a readiness, a willingness to place God over and above everything, even the best of God's gifts. To be willing to surrender the past and the future to God. What happens next in this story is pure gospel. As Abraham lifts his hand to deliver the death blow, 
As Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, an angel of God interrupts him. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Notice that? Only son. That ought to get your attention. Does that word only remind you of anybody? This is a preview of the gospel. Suddenly they hear the bleating of a goat, a ram, somehow or another. It's been caught in the thicket, in the brush. It seems like a coincidence, but it's not. And indeed, this ram will become the substitutionary sacrifice in worship of God. And Abraham, on the spot, names the place Jehovah Jireh. It's what you were singing about. It means the Lord will provide. And did he ever? Did you know that in that very spot, which is called in the Bible Moriah, centuries later, a city would be built, built in that spot, a holy city, we call it Jerusalem, and in that same place, Solomon's temple would be constructed. It becomes the place of sacrifice. And today, in that same spot in Moriah, is the dome on the rock. Some of you have been there. When you enter into the dome, you see a huge rock where it is said that Abraham bound his only son, Akedah, and God provided. Not far from that spot is another rock. It's called Golgotha. On that rock, another father walked with his son, led his son to a cross where he became the atoning sacrifice, the substitution for my sin and for yours. And though God did not require this of Abraham's only son, God himself willingly gave his only son on our behalf at Moriah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have life everlasting. In the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, we get a preview of the Akedah of Jesus. It's the gospel of Genesis. We worship a God, we serve a God who not only tests us, but provides for us. Wherever God guides, God provides. Paul knew it. That's why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, these words, No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone, and God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing will provide the way through so that you may be able to endure the pressure. And that's what God did for Abraham, and that's what God will do for you. And whosoever calls on his name. There's one example, and I'm through. 
had the privilege of participating in a funeral a week ago Saturday at New Covenant or New Song Church in Franklin, a funeral for a dear friend of mine named Carol Clapp. She was 69 years of age. She'd been a nurse for 44 years. The reason I knew Carol was because she was a youth counselor in the church that I grew up in as a teenager some 40-some-odd years ago. She and her husband at that time, Lynn, who were young newlyweds, were asked to become youth counselors in the youth wing. Now, I need to tell you that the average tenure of a youth counselor in my youth group, my church, was about three and a half weeks. We were a tough crowd who quite often were more interested in trying to be cool than to follow Jesus. And when they came into the room that Sunday morning, the first time, we saw fresh meat, and they saw sons and daughters of Abraham. For some reason, Lynn and Carol were not afraid of us, and they came into our space, and they loved us. They shared God's Word with us. And God, as God does, just walked across from their hearts into ours. Carol had an accident about three weeks ago. It was a freak accident. She was fine until that moment. She was placed in the hospital on a ventilator, and about eight days later, she died. Her husband, Lynn, stood up at the funeral and with the other pastors shared his testimony. He said, the last eight days have been very difficult for us. He said, I wandered the corridors in the hospital asking God over and over for a miracle. And God would say to me, Lynn, trust me. He'd say, I do, Lord, but here's what needs to happen. We need a miracle here. And again, the voice, trust me, trust me. I, I do, I, I do, Lord, but here's what, trust me, Lynn. Eight days after the accident, Carol passed away. But Lynn had the audacity to say to us that they actually did receive a miracle, but it wasn't exactly the one he was asking. He said to us that God had provided, surviving would have been a miracle, but resurrection was a greater miracle. In fact, he said, eternal life is the greatest miracle of God. And he said, I want you to know that I trust God because I have learned that wherever God guides, God provides. And I knew in that moment that I was witnessing a son of Abraham. Are you a son, a daughter of Abraham? You can be. But only as we put our whole trust in God through Christ and surrender past, present, future to God so that divine purpose might be realized fully in you, in life, in death, in life beyond death, to the glory of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.